Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Waiteka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Hello, everybody. I'm so excited. I'm having a returning guest, Diane Kane. Um, She was with me, gosh, it's been more than two years ago, like two and a half years ago. And she's an author. And she's also one of the founding members of Quab and Quills, and we're going to be talking about that as well. And I'm just excited to have you back, Diane. It's just lovely to have you join me once again. Thank you, Marsha. I'm honored to be a returning guest. And, yes. Um, yes. It doesn't seem like it's been that long since we talked. Cause I, know. I follow you on Facebook, and I I Aww. love your word of the day. <laughs> Oh, thank you. That's, you know how long I've been doing that? Oh, my God. It's like how long? six. Um, today was, okay, today was word number 2,484. Wow. Uh, that's a, you divide 375 <laughs> into that, and there you got it. And, you know, I don't just do the word of the day. Oh, no, I have to have an Excel spreadsheet. God forbid I should repeat myself. Anyway, but that's not what we're about right now. So I know. So what we're what we are about is us and you and I, but primarily you, Diane. So I thought for people that that don't know you, didn't listen a few years ago, why don't we just get to know a little bit about you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I live in the winter time. I live in rural Massachusetts. About 100 miles from Boston, west, in, in the woods. And um, mm. in the summertime, I live in a small trailer on the southern coast of Maine. So I have the best of both worlds. I, I love both places. And um, I've done a lot of things in my life. I've, I've been a chef for several years, and then I was a postal mail carrier for 25 years. But the important thing is I, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, and I'm a grandmother. Um, actually, I, my youngest daughter just had a baby in April, so I'm babysitting oh, four days a week for, wow. for her, for Gabby. And um, I'm just having a wonderful time doing that. But one of the things, you know, and I've been a writer my whole life, and I've done children's books and short stories. Yeah. I've written for magazines and newspapers. But one thing that I always wanted to achieve, I wanted to write a novel. And I did accomplish that this year in um, March, in the end of March. I, I published um, I, I Never Cause and Pass. So it's, um, it's like a lifelong that. goal, and I'm I'm very mm. proud of it. Of course you are. Of course you are. And you know, for those that didn't um, um, join us the last time, um, I mentioned that you're one of the founding members of Quab and Quills, and um, that is just that. And I'm going to spell that for for everyone that's listening, and it'll also be in my blog. But this is how you spell it. It's Q U A 
B B like boy B B I N quills with the pro, with s q u i l l s dot org. And it's a lovely lovely website, and you're one of the founding members. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Quab and Quills? I would love to. I'm so proud okay. of this organization. Tello, he's an author also, and he brought a few of us authors together. Asked us, would we like to be involved? in forming an, a nonprofit organization to help other writers. And the ultimate goal was to give scholarships to seniors furthering their education in writing. And we have accomplished that and more. And in the last six years, we've published six anthologies, which anthologies are a collection of short stories by different people. So every year we take submissions, and we um, publish new off, new writers. We and mm-hmm. we um, welcome seasoned authors to. And sometimes they have stories that they haven't been able to publish other places. And we help them. We do workshops with polishing the stories, and we put out a beautiful anthology every year. And we've just published our sixth anthology and it's called our wild winds and it's on amazon Mm -hmm. right now and there's so many great stories in there i'm just so proud of it and we give scholarships every year three scholarships to graduating seniors this year we had um six applicants so all six of them have their work published in this book Mm. and three receive scholarships and they're all just so excited about it and and we're and together i steve piscatello um garrett zecker and james tebow that they are we're like the the board the immediate board but then we have Uh a few other people that help us but it's really a small organization but we do a lot we give to teachers who need supplies and um help help writers when they need help and is that in the is that in the area of maine or is that in the area of, of more it's like in massachusetts. it's in mass yeah, okay Western that's okay okay yeah. well i think we it's fabulous from, yep submissions from all over new england right now that's, okay that's our area Oh, that's good. So you're not limited to just one location then. That's that's very important no. for people that are listening. Maybe yeah. maybe there's a, a parent that's listening that's thinking, Wow, you know, this would be great for Susie to get involved in this. That that and I'm exactly. sure I mean I'm looking I'm looking at your website and you know, not only um are the titles of your anthologies cool, I just I love the cover. I mean I'm looking at Times Reservoir, and I remember thinking we talked about that, and we talked about Voices yeah. of the Valley. You know, um, yeah. that, that's really, really cool. I'm sure you must get such satisfaction out of that, don't you? We have, and not only, you know, the the works inside the short stories and poetry, but the covers are done by local artists or photographers, and we've mm. involved. Now we do 
photographs inside too they're black and white but we we're really involving other arts in with the writing so that it's been fun and we just keep expanding and thank you for complimenting the website because we just did that um had that done over and we're pretty proud of that too so it's, it yeah, is, it's, it's just lovely small. it's absolutely non-profit none of us get compensated we we are giving back because we've been helped on our way up in mm-hmm. in writing and by teachers and other people other authors so we we're just giving back i just think it's just fabulous and if somebody is a writer what a what a wonderful opportunity so tell me what else have you been up to since we were talking um couple years ago i know you've written your novel and we're going to definitely be talking about that yeah a couple years ago it's funny because well that was kind of in the middle of covid and we i I was doing the children's books i i did um don gato the three-legged cat of saborga and with my friend who it's her cat and Linda McCluskey she's a great artist lives in Italy and she did the illustrations and we published that in French um, English French Spanish and Italian and I'm really you know proud of that and what it's the message that it brings that we're all uniquely perfect and it it lets children know that it's okay to be um, not to be all the same Yes. And since and, then, I've, yes. uh-huh. I've done a couple. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Um, yeah, so since then, I've written a lot of short stories for different publications, which I love to do fictional short stories. But I also write for magazines and newspapers, which I've had a lot of fun with because I've met so many people and that was also a lot during COVID where I couldn't go out and really interview people in person but I did a lot on email and in messaging and I really feel like I connected with so many people on so many levels and that's you know really what I love to do like like you connect with people and tell their stories and I found that that is so rewarding to find people who who are doing such amazing things, but their stories really don't get told that often. Right. So that I really enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I can I can see why I can see why you would because that's just innately who you are, and it makes a difference. And you know, you'll never maybe know to what degree you've made a difference in the life of these kids. Um, you, you, you know, some sure. of them may come back and say, "Oh my God, I just published my first book thanks to you guys." I mean, right. I'm sure you have some success stories, but let's talk about yes. your success because congratulations, you just published Thank that you. new novel, and the title is "I Never Called Him Pa." So, what is what is this book about? Well, to to tell you that, I'm going to read the blurb because the blurb is what every author has to do. It's 150 words that have to explain the whole novel and get the reader's interest. And any okay. author will tell you that this 150 words is the hardest words to write, uh-huh. the most difficult okay. of writing the whole book. So this okay. is my blurb. 
I Never Called Him Pa by Diane Kane is a coming-of-age novel set in the 1950s, told in the voice of Henry, a young fatherless boy living on a farm in northern Illinois with his grandmother, his wayward mother, and the traveler who changes all their lives. After World War II, the military sent men home on trains. Some never got off. They rode the rails in boxcars, searching for their souls, lost to the toils of society or the ravages of war. Ernest was one such man of color. He seeks refuge with Henry, Graham, and her daughter Janie on the farm. Their sins and secrets could either drive them apart or bind them together. Take a journey you will never forget, and I never called him Pa. I've got goosebumps. I've actually included that in my blog because it's just masterfully written. And um, so, wow. I I mean, really, I've I've got goosebumps. So where did you get the idea to to write this book about this subject? You know, that's funny. When I thought about it, I really have had this idea since I was a child because Mm. I spent a lot of time with my grandfather and he worked on the railroad, and he told me about the hobos who rode in the boxcars, and he would give them food, and they did odd jobs for him, and he told me they were good men who had just lost their way, and that idea always stuck in my head through the years, and I was curious about how these men ended up homeless, riding the rails, and as I got older, I realized that the words post-traumatic stress disorder and and depression were not everyday words back then. And these Mm -hmm. men probably suffered from these syndromes and dropped out of society to places where they could be among their others like themselves and who they bonded with. And so that's, you know, that idea just always stuck with me. And when I got older, I, I wrote about it. Hmm. That's so interesting. You know, you there was a, there was um, a train tracks that were very very close to where I lived, growing up. I was very close to the LAX mm-hmm. airport, but there was also trains. And when mm-hmm. you said hobo, I thought to myself, wow, that was a word we used to hear back a million years ago. You don't even yes. I, 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 you don't even hear that word today in society. We probably have generations that's never even heard the word hobo or that people were living uh, and we're talking men uh, were living in these trains. It, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable to me uh, that that it, that's go ahead. It is it, it you know and that word of course through my grandfather was familiar to me, but I realized when I started writing this story that it is not a word that is used now. And as I approached agents and publishers, they didn't want to touch the story because of that word. They all, they would hmm. say to me, that's, that's that word. It's, it's not um, socially correct. And so I, I was, you know, doors were shut to me. But I, I really felt that this, I, I use the word with great respect and honor for these men. And to me, mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to use that word. But 
when I when I was querying agents, I decided that I would change. I, Thirteen times I used the word hobo in the manuscript. I changed them all to traveler to try to pitch the story to agents. And while I was while the query letters were out, I just happened to run across author um, Ed Davis book and his book is The Last Professional and he really changed everything for me Mm. I've never met him in person he lives in Oregon and I started reading his book and this is like so many things that happened to me throughout the writing of this book that things just happened by coincidence as it seemed but they were meant to be is, what, yes. is how I felt. And so I started reading Ed's book, and in the beginning of the book, he talks about how agents told him he could not use the word hobo. And Ed's book is based on his life in the 1970s as a hobo himself. And his wow. fictional characters are based on people who he rode the rails with. And so... Hmm. As I read further on, his is a completely different story than mine because it's it's the 70s and mine is mine is it's set in the 50s. But there were so many similarities. So I reached out to Ed and he answered me, and I was wow. so happy. I told him that I was writing a book and I told him that it was about hobos, and he read the manuscript. He actually helped me, gave me advice on the beginning, and mm. he said to me, you know, publish the book and use the words and give these men their due. And so I did. I changed all the words back to hobo, and I published the book. That's a very interesting story. You know, the backstories to authors, most most people never hear the backstories because that's not what they're reading about. But that's very, very interesting. I'm curious, why did you set it in Illinois? Well, that's a great question because... I have never been to Illinois, Marcia. So uh-huh. I had to do a lot of research to do this book. When I began writing the story, and it's, you know, it's based in the late 40s and throughout the 50s of the hobos riding the steam trains. And as I was writing it, and I was reading it to my husband, he said to me, you better check and see when the steam trains stopped running because I, he thought it was in the late 40s. When what I found oh. in my research was that in most of the country, they did stop running in the late 40s, but around Chicago and the Illinois, upper Illinois area, they ran into the early 50s. So to base my, my um, story accurately, that's where I had to put it. And sure. what I had to do was I had to do so much research on Illinois. What kind of trees grew there? When did the crocus come up? Do they have eagles there? Mm-hmm. Everything that was in my book, I had to research it as according to northern Illinois. And I did get a, a few readers from northern Illinois, pre-readers that read it and gave me advice. That's you know, I so respect what you do because because you you've put the effort in to be accurate, and and that says a lot about you. And I was thinking, if you had the time, could you just read just a, a small um, excerpt from the book to give us a sense of it? Sure. Um, 
I'm going to read, I'll read chapter six. And this is when Ernest first comes in to young Henry's life. Uh, Young Henry is on the farm. He's being raised by his grandmother. His mother comes and goes and uh, with different men, she's looking for um, a better life and she doesn't really know how to go about it. And so she, she's, she wanders in and out of Henry's life. Now, um, this is where Ernest first comes into, into the scene. So this is chapter six. It takes a man. One morning, Graham had come out on the front porch to call me in for breakfast when I saw one of the hobos, the younger one with red hair, hailed her. Graham walked to meet him. He took his dusty cap off and held it in both his hands in front of him. He kicked a few rocks with his odd shoes. His head bowed toward the ground. I saw his lips move and Graham listened silently. Finally, he turned and began to walk away. Graham called out, he can stay in the shed down by the tracks for now. I'll see to him. I thought I saw a tear roll down the hobo's cheek. He He quickly wiped it away. Perhaps it was just sweat. It was a warm day. After supper, Graham packed up the leftovers in an old cardboard box. She put in some tattered blankets and a jug of water without saying a word. I watched her cross the yard and disappear through some trees toward the tracks. The following morning, after the train departed, I followed the path Graham had taken the evening before. I snuck down to the tracks to the shed by the roundhouse. I heard heavy breathing and figured the person was sleeping. I jumped up to peek in the window, hit my head, and said a curse word. Then I saw him, and I almost turned tail and ran. That's no way to greet the morning sun. His voice was quiet and friendly, but his face was hard. I remember seeing him from afar, sitting in the boxcar. Now that I could see him up, up close, I couldn't take my eyes away from the scar, zigzagging like lightning across his cheek. I was too weak in the knees to run. I won't harm you, son. He, he had a voice that put me in mind of chocolate melting. That must have hurt, I said, staring at the scar. He raised his large, dark hand to his face and touched the raised skin as though he'd forgotten it was there. Not as much when it hap- happened as it did later, he said. It's funny how things don't hurt right away. It's when you think about it. It's the thinking that'll kill you, son. I just want to read a little bit more. Turn this over. Um, He called me son, and I liked it. I knew it was not his blood that ran through my body. I had been on a farm long enough to know it took a ma and a pa. I never met the flesh and blood man I sprouted from, but I knew it wasn't this man. He was brown as the dirt in Graham's garden and almost as big as the old brown's two-year-old heifer. Tight curly knots of dusty black hair clung tightly to his head and glistened with tiny drops of moisture. He said his name was Ernest. I took time. I took to spending time with him, and I liked it. I got up earlier each morning to get a head start on my chores after the 7 a.m. train came through. To tell the truth, I missed the train a few times, and Graham was right. It got on without me. So I'll stop there. Gosh, you know... I I would presume, and I don't know that this is something you've got down the road, but this would be a fabulous audio book. Are you thinking about doing that? 
I, I, I am. I've been looking into it, not with my voice, that's for sure. I would hire, I would want somebody well, that could read better than I could. But um, I don't know. Yes, and, and actually everyone that reads the book says mentions that they would love to see it as a movie. So, so if anyone's yes. out there. <laughs> Gosh, I'm like, think about who do I know. So how long did yeah. it take you to actually write this novel? Well, it's funny because, you know, like I said, I could say it took me a lifetime because the idea came to me, um, you know, when I was just young. But it, it it was about seven years ago now that I wrote the short story. The the idea really solidified, and and I saw the characters in my mind and I wrote a short story of about 15,000 words and it had Henry the young boy and, and Ernest the hobo and Graham and, and um, didn't talk too much about the other, like his mother or any other characters. But I had that short story written beginning, middle and end. And it kind of just sat in my drawer for a while until one day in 2021, I saw a call for submissions by Red Penguin Press for a historical fiction short story contest. And I remembered the story and I took it out and I um, polished it up and I submitted it. And not only did it win first place, which gave it the cover Mm -hmm. title, and at that point the, the short story was called Ernest Lived. And other and so the the title of the anthology is Ernest Lived and Other Historical Fiction Stories. And afterwards, the editor said to me that his entire staff saw something special in it. So I knew then that it would be the basis for my first novel, but it still took me some time. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to mention that the reason I named it Ernest Lived is because I really felt connected to this man, Ernest. Um, and mm-hmm. he he just was meant a lot to me. And I wanted to write about this fictional man and that he lived and that he had been through so many things in his life, but he still spoke with love and hope. And that's um, that was why I named it Ernest Live. But I realized when I went to write the novel that I would have to have another title because Ernest Lived was already the anthology title. Mm. So I, I was about halfway through the book when I realized that Henry always, he loved to hear Ernest call him son, but he never called him pa because he really didn't, he knew it wasn't his pa and he didn't feel he had the right to call him Pa. So that's where I got that title. Wow. And so when I really, when I sat down finally in in January of 2022, a lot of the story had been running through my head. And and when I sat down in January of that year, in two and a half months, that story just poured out of me, the whole Mm. 85,000 words. And I, I had to you know, more into each character. I had to do subplots and, um, and I had to bring in new characters and I, I just really had a lot of fun. I, um, I always feel like my characters talk to me and, mm-hmm. 
they, they really did in this point. They really wanted their story told, and they let me tell it. That's how, that's how I feel. Wow. Talk about a connection. So, but, but what the was thing is, it, so in yes, two and a half ahead. months, that, that story went down on paper, but that was only the beginning because it took a full year after that for me to publish it because I, I, had, to, I had 13 beta okay. readers, which beta readers will read the manuscript and give me feedback. I had readers from all walks of life because I did a lot with farming. So I had a lot of people who were familiar with farming read the manuscript. Uh, not only did I have Ernest, a man of color in it, and I had um, people that of different races that read read the story. I had I also have in this book a Jewish family, so I had several Jewish readers. I have mm-hmm. a gay couple. So I had readers from all walks of life that gave me feedback on what I got right and what I needed to update or change a little. Mm-hmm. And after that, I had proofreaders. And because it's historical and I use historical events, I had fact checkers, editors. So that all took a year. Wow, what a process. What's, what's the hardest thing about writing that kind of, what, to writing that? My gosh. Well, you know, it, it, every little part of it has its difficulties, but I, I do enjoy it all. The, the mm-hmm. hardest part I felt in writing this story was to get the voice right because I used young Henry as he is the narrator. It's first person in his voice. And it starts out with Henry only six years old, five or six years old. And then he, you know, I had to find his voice and make sure it was the voice of a young boy, but not so simplistic as to be boring. So I had to find the right balance on that. And Mm -hmm. then as he matures, he grows through, you know, the 1950s, and it actually ends in 1964. So I had to mature his voice and his thinking throughout that time. So Mm -hmm. that was, I found that to be challenging. And, and I I like challenges, though. So I I did enjoy that part, too. And, um, yeah, and also that Henry is, is the narrator. So Everything in the book that he he talks about, he has to see it or he has to be told it by someone else. So I had to adjust mm-hmm. in a couple of places where how could Henry have, have heard that? And so I have him, you know, hiding behind the door or sneaking, you know, listening, listening at his Graham's door. And so I had to make sure that all of those things, all of those checks had to be, be checked to make sure that I got everything right. So that that was a little that was a little challenging. I bet I bet it was, and you 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 brought your characters to life, didn't you? I mean, that's what you did. I did. You know, I I read where um, Ernest Hemingway said a writer shouldn't um, build characters; they should build people and I feel like I did that and they were real to me and now that I'm getting reviews the reviews are just so rewarding because people are saying 
I know these people. I feel like they're my friends. I want to, you know, know them better. I want to spend more time with them. People are reading the book twice because they love them so much, which is is just wonderful to me. I can see where people that are listening to this podcast that maybe are in book clubs going, oh, my God. We, we we have to get this has to be a book for our book club. This is just uh, I it, would love I love doing book um book clubs. I've done several book clubs and you know, that is the greatest most rewarding thing for an author because all of those people read the book and they're they're telling me they're telling me what they love about each character and I'm just sitting there and just basking in it all and just taking it in because I and and you know, they're asking me questions about this one or that one, but they they sometimes tell me things that I'm surprised at that they got out of the character, and mm-hmm. and I just love that. So if yeah, anybody yeah. really would like to do it for for a book club, I do on Zoom. I can talk to people book clubs anywhere. Whoa, that's so cool. Yeah, you know, isn't isn't technology startling? Uh, I mean, truly, I, love I it. it's just amazing. So, who who have been I do, your greatest? I, love it. I know it's yeah, fabulous. Marcia, you know, people say <coughs> that you know social media is so bad, but there's so much good in it. And if you really look, I I ignore the bad. I just Me too. shut it down if I see it. And I have met the most amazing people on social media all over the world from from my yep. book and i feel like i'm just as close to them or close to you i've sure. you know i've never met you in person but i feel like we're good friends and yes. i i know you yes you know it's funny what you just said because i hear music often in my head and I, what came into my head as you were saying that is um, a song from Spamalot, and one uh-huh. of the songs is called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Yeah. And I'm with you on that. Yes, my my Facebook page was hacked um, a couple of months ago, uh-huh. and it was a big hassle. But it is a method of being in touch with people. I have a, a special Facebook page just for my classmates. And, you know, I think that if... If if people just use it in a way that's for the good, it it really does connect us as humans. I've never met a stranger that probably doesn't surprise you, and no, nope. <laughs> I and so I enjoy the opportunity to speak to people and hear what their story is, and sometimes it happens through social media. Maybe it's not Facebook. Maybe it's LinkedIn. You know, you never know where right. it's going to come from. But um, it certainly is um, fabulous. So um, let me ask you, who have been your greatest supporters so far? Oh, I have been so fortunate with, um, well, throughout all of my writing, throughout my whole life, but through my writing. And with this book, it was just seems like, you know, every time that I got discouraged or I got scared or nervous, there was somebody there that lifted mm-hmm. me up. And early on, excuse me, when I was writing the story, I realized that I was in, 
I was touching on important racial issues, and I mm-hmm. questioned whether, as a white author, I had the right to write about this story mm-hmm. of a black homeless man. And I was at a book event with my children's books, and the author next to me, I'd never met her before, her name um, Jody Crody, and she asked me what I was working on, and I told her, and I shared with her my apprehension, and she asked me, who, who was I in the book? And without hesitation, I said, I'm Henry. I'm the young farm boy. And, and Masha, up till that moment, I had not realized it, that not only mm. was I writing from Henry's point of view, he was me. He's how I think. He's how I see things. And so Jody mm. said to me, then write Henry's story. And I did. I wrote how Henry saw Ernest and what he thought of him. So that, you know, gave me the courage to go on from that point. But I still continued to have doubts. And through it all, my good friend, Catherine Reed, who is a black woman, pastor, and poet, she gave me her full support. She read the short story several years ago, and immediately she said to me that she wouldn't wanted me to make it into a novel. She loved the character of Ernest and said the message was so important. And so she was one of my early readers of the manuscript, and she told me she cried. She just loved oh. it. And um, she she is one of my greatest supporters that wants to see it in a movie, too. But I was going to say, the, absolutely. On, yeah. But on, on so, the day of my first book event, I was still, uh-huh. I was so anxious about bringing uh-huh. it to people and how they would think of it. And so I emailed Catherine, and I said, Catherine, I'm scared. And she said to me, Diane, God gave you this story, and he wants you to share it. So I thought, well, I can't get a better endorsement than that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So why do you think this is such an important story to share? Well, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people I feel – that I've been talking to readers, they've lived through this time. And a lot of them have similar stories that they, they mm. knew people, you know, the hobos that rode on the rails, or they had relatives that, you know, dropped out of society like that and um, for different, different reasons. And so to them, this story, like it's bringing back a lot of memories and a lot of thoughts. You know, I had one woman say, my my grandmother used to feed the hobos, uh, you know, by the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's important that way. I also think it's important for younger people. I mean, I've sent the book to high schools. High school librarians have, have asked me for it to show, you know, the children of this generation, the young people, mm-hmm. how – what happened in the 50 in the 40s and 50s and how in rural you know america that these things could happen so and also i just want to mention that mm-hmm. from your show i met an, an amazing young man um his name is Farron doser oh that, Farron dosier Ferran Dozier. Dozier. Oh, yes. Ferran Dozier. He's a phenomenal he man. Was, he was, 
yeah, he was, I know he, you're very close to him. I, I mm-hmm. that he helped you out with the, with the podcast originally. Yes, he did. And I heard him, uh, you interview him and him talk about sickle cell and how yep. he yep. had it. He found out he had it when he was in the military and he has made it his um, mission to educate other young um, black soldiers in finding it, you know, that whether they have it or they have the trait and how to, um, you know, live with. And so when I was writing, I never called him Pa. Originally the short story I had, Ernest had palsy and that was very generic. And I knew when I wrote the book that I wanted to be, wanted to get into what his illness was more. And I thought about, and I, I said, you know, I would like to shed more light on sickle cell in just my little way in this book. Maybe I could help. So I wrote in, you know, I got in touch with him and he told, he, he told me some things about sickle cell. I asked questions and I wrote it into several places in the book. And then I sent, sent those place those, um, excerpts to him and he read them all and confirmed that I had gotten all those things right about sickle cell. So, you know, I just wanted to really try to make this as historically and medically accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. Gosh, you're just uh, you're amazing. So what's the feedback uh, been like and reviews that you're getting? Say that again? I'm sorry. So what's the feedback that you've been getting um, from your book and the reviews? I The feedback is just so um, overwhelming. I'm, I can't tell you. I You know, I had hoped to write a good book. I, I wanted to make it as um, accurate and, and edited as well as possible, fact check as well as possible but I'm really overwhelmed with how people are saying to me how much they love these characters how much this story really changed their life their attitude gave them hope Hmm. I I can't I can't even um, I, I just can't I never imagined that it would be this meaningful and I'm so proud of it. One of one of the reviews, it said, I'll, I'll read it. It said, "I I lived in Mendota with these characters. I could feel the love between them. I enjoyed this book more than anything I've read in a long time." And mm-hmm. another one was, "I was transported back in time and imagined that the characters were real live people. It definitely made me cry. Such a beautiful story, so well told. Words can't express." Um, the exuberant joy and profound sadness that it brought to my heart and mine. And I, they're all like that. And I'm just, I really feel like Catherine Reed said, this story was given to me and I was just the secretary and wrote it down. I feel that it was meant to be. It was a story, even though it's fictional, that it was, it was, it had to be told. Yes. Well, it's, it's fabulous. So when you when you were writing it, <clears throat> I'm kind of curious, what kind of uh, historical facts did you use, and how did you decide which ones to use? 
Um, the, I had a lot of fun with the historical part of it. I, you know, looked up things. And this is another thing where I feel like it, it was meant to be. Like, it was coincidence that if I look up, I, need, I needed a... Um, something in 1954 and I'd look up historical facts and they're, they'd just be there that just fit right in with the story. Uh-huh. I'm just going to read you um, this really short portion. This was... Sure, um, please. It was it's part where Graham and... Uh, Graham loved to read the paper. She, she didn't spend a lot of money on things, but she said the Sunday paper, it was important. So she's sitting there, um, and this is Henry talking. Graham liked to read aloud as we ate our lunch. One day, she talked with Ernest about a golf story. I never knew Graham had an interest, and I couldn't imagine Ernest playing, yet that's what they talked about. That Hmm. Joe Lewis, the boxer, really shook up the Professional Golfers Association, didn't he, Graham asked. Ernest chuckled. He's never been one to back down from a fight. He opened his mouth wide to take a bite of his sandwich made with Graham's homemade oatmeal bread cut thick. They should have known Joe Lewis would call them to task when they let him play as a guest in the tournament but denied admission to Negro professional golfer Bill Spiller. Ernest finished chewing and said, He had them on the ropes when he said the PGA was the last major sport in America denying entry to Negroes. Things are changing, Ernest. So, I mean, things like that that were just meant to be in the story. um, Another part was about polio, which was running rampant in that time and how, mm-hmm. you know, they were all scared. All the kids were scared and how one child in their class does come down with polio. So Ooh. that's like a thread that goes through the whole book of how they look at that and how they deal with that and, and how um, they bond with, with the young girl. Wow. It's funny when you, you you you're conjuring up thoughts in my mind because I was born in 1949, so I was growing up in the 50s. I remember mm-hmm. standing in line in my elementary school to get that sugar cube that we took yep. to prevent polio. It's just it's really interesting what you say. So, what do you want your readers to take away from this book? Um. I want them to to feel like um, that that things things are changing. Things have changed, but we still have a lot of work to do. But that there is hope, and uh-huh. that's what I would like. I would like them. I would like them to feel when they when they finish the story. I mean, people tell me that they cry during throughout the story at certain places. I'll tell you, I read the the manuscript 20 times when when (laughs) I was proofreading and I cry every time. But but when Rita started telling me that, I thought, oh no, this probably isn't a good thing that they're crying. And one woman said to me, no, you don't understand. I'm not crying because I'm sad. I'm crying because it touched me so deeply. 
So, right. uh, you know, and I just, there, there's, it touches on how we're all different, but we're all the same. We're all human beings. Exactly. I think sometimes people forget that. Mm-hmm. I really do. I, I really, I think sometimes people forget that. We don't necessarily know the story of who we're approaching in the market or taking a walk. Mm-hmm. But what we have in common is we're all humans. And let, let's do the best we can to bring out the best in that, the best that right. we can. And uh, you know, it sounds to me like this book has certainly done that. So I'm just curious. Uh, you're, there's probably never an idle time in your life. So uh, what are you working on now? Well, I am working on uh, the, my second novel, which has also been in my head for a long time. And uh, I haven't sat down to write it yet, a book that when I do finally sit down, that it will will come out because I've I've got the characters and I've got the, the plot. And it's more of a mystery. And this one is going to be called... Finding Wild Fern, and it's set in the late 1940s, and it's a young girl abandoned on the side of the road, of a dirt road in the Appalachian Mountains, and she has no memory of her past or how she got there. And a recluse mountain clan finds her, naming her Fern for the wild foliage and where she's hiding, and Fern um, finds comfort in the arms of the mountain woman who's lost her child, and She's content in her new life for several years until tragedy reveals her to the authorities and she becomes incarcerated. So her memories of her other life begin to haunt her, and some want to help her discover her past while others try to hide it. And in this book, I really want to shine light on mental illness and child abuse. I see. Wow. I'm just curious. I'm, I'm thinking about your lifestyle. And um, how long how long did it take you to write the first is manuscript the correct word for um, your book this your novel is, right is, is, right how long did it take you to write that first manuscript well the first you know it was it was about two months but it it took many changes I wouldn't say it was the first draft I'd say I went through probably about three drafts four drafts in that two months but then fine tuning is just yes it takes months and months and months and it's just updating this or updating that and you know some people hate that or dislike that part a lot some authors but i don't i really enjoy it i enjoy tweaking it and actually at some point i do have to just push publish because i would still tweak it i i kind of (laughs) don't want to read the book again because I would probably want to change some things. Not mistakes, but just go, oh, I could put this in there or I could put that in there. And I was working on on the manuscript until the day before I published. And in fact, I, I was, I was on social, I think I told you that I was on social media and I happened to see a posting from Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs. And I, and he was talking about his walking his dog, Freddie, and he came across a hobo who had a possum on a leash. 
and protecting oh. his his belongings. And I so and he said, Mike Rose said, I know I'm not supposed to use that word hobo, but that is what I've called I've always called these people and I don't I say it with all the greatest respect. And so I wrote in the comments I said, Mike Rowe, thank you for calling a hobo a hobo. I've written a story about hobos and I also give them the greatest respect and give them their due. And I didn't get, Mike Rowe didn't answer me, but over a hundred people commented on my comment. And one woman said to me, why don't you put a possum in your book? You know, others were asking me about the book and everything. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm just about to publish this. And, you know, I I don't want to change it. Some things, if you change it, changes the page numbers, changes everything. But I thought about it and I'm like, I, you know what, I could do this. And so I put in two sentences and it's young Henry, Henry saying that um, Ernest tells him a story about one of his brothers on the tra- on the, in the boxcars that has a possum on a leash guarding his, his things. And Henry thinks to himself, that's a pretty tall tale. And if my friend <laughs> Willie had told me that, that story, I wouldn't believe it. But because Ernest is telling it to me, I know it's true. And those two sentences just solidified how much Henry trusts Ernest. And so the day before publication, I changed all all the different, because it's all different manuscripts for hardcover, softcover, e-book. So I changed them all to put in those two sentences, and I think they're fantastic. I can't imagine. You never know where an idea is going to come from. You don't, and I'm just thinking about your brain. Do you do you just keep like a tablet near the bed or something, and you get an idea in the middle of the night, and you write it down? I try. I do. I try to write them down, but, you know, I've gotten better and better over the last several years of being able to remember things. Um, Good. I, I do. I a lot of my writing is done in my sleep. I really do wake up with these ideas and then I can write them down. So I, I find that that is my way of working. That that's the way my brain works when I'm relaxed the most. That's when it's the most creative. And when you say you write it down, um, do you go straight to a computer or do you write it, handwrite it? Like I, a think I handwrite. I I handwrite a lot of notes. Yeah. Wow. But I That's do most cool. of my work on the computer. I I like working on a computer rather yes. than than hand by hand. I can't read my handwriting anymore. So you know. <laughs> I know. That's I part. Know. That's part of the problem. <laughs> that's so funny. So I'm just I'm just your lifestyle is so amazing to me. Um, so tell me. It's when you're I not writing, <laughs> oh gosh, well, isn't that great? Yeah, great when I've dreams can come true. Since I was a kid, so it's it's I'm living the dream. You know, I was I was a chef. I was a postal worker. I loved all my jobs. I love, you know, everything that I've done. But I've always wanted to be a writer, an author. I wanted to be paid for what I do, not because of the money, but because that is recognition that my words are worth something to somebody. Right. It can be very little, 
but it's that recognition to me that that my words are worth something. I wonder what your your teachers would think about this. Do they do, do you have any connection to your early education? I do. I do. I've had the greatest teacher when I was in high school. I had her for several years, and I had her for English and um, creative writing, Mrs. Rogers. And she was she gave me such support and encouragement that over 50 years later, her words still stick with me and gave, and kept that dream alive. And she told me that that I never ceased to amaze her. (laughs) Wow. And she told me I would be a a great author someday. I'm still working toward that. But uh, (laughs) but her words, and that's why I think teachers are so, so important, because their encouragement is not just that day. It's a lifetime. You bet. That is so true. So when you're not, when your brain isn't in manuscript form, what do you like to do when you're not writing? What, what's, what do you, I mean, I know if I was living where you're living, I'd be certainly looking at the fall foliage, but what do you like doing? Yeah, yeah. I do, uh, well, I'm in Maine, you know, a lot of the time, and I walk on the beach uh-huh. almost every day I try. But And I also am just so blessed to take care of my granddaughter who was born in April to my daughter oh, okay. um, who we didn't, think she was going to ever was going to have children she didn't think so and so she and later in life she she just um has had gabrielle and i take care of her four days a week while my daughter works and it's just amazing to see life and the changes and just this beautiful smile every day so that just warms my heart isn't that I'm sure that, you know, we all have our own steps in life. Some things we mm-hmm. are we plan for and, and they happen as planned. Sometimes things happen that we haven't planned for, and mm-hmm. I can certainly attest to that. But what I think is important is purposeful, purposeful living and gratitude. And I hear yeah. that in, in every aspect of what you say that you're and not only that but let me just say this Diane I think you're also very humble you're authentic and you speak the truth but you're humble because I think people have been so touched by what you've done that you are affecting the next generation of authors just by being who you are you don't have to work at it it's just who you are it's one of the things that I love to do. I love to help other authors, writers, and I, I do do that a lot. And it's very rewarding to me because I have had many other writers and authors help me. But, but it's, um, it's funny that you talk about purpose because that is one of the main themes of I never called him pa is purpose. And when young Henry is talking to Ernest and Ernest, and they're talking about purpose in life and Ernest, Henry says to Ernest, um, can a man, can a person live without purpose? Mm -hmm. And Ernest says, thinks he thinks about it. And he says to, to young Henry, they can, but they can't live well. 
And I think mm. that that's um, one of the things that is important in all of our, all of our lives is to find our purpose. And I agree. To I, I absolutely it, agree. Uh, yeah, it's funny because when I I was younger, I just had this overwhelming feeling that that God there was a purpose for me and that I was going to see these lights in the sky that said, Diane, this way, this is your purpose. And as life went on and I didn't really think I found that purpose, I thought, did I miss the big arrow in the sky or, <laughs> or was, you know, or is there no purpose for me? But then I, you know, I realized as time goes on, the purpose doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be extra large. Sometimes it can be small and sometimes it can mm-hmm. just be a, a hello to somebody who needs yes. to hear that on that yes. day. And, and, you know, sometimes Boy. you help people and you don't even know it. So we all have this purpose. And, you know, if my purpose is to write this book and to touch other people and give them hope, then that, that is a great purpose. And I'm, I'm very, I am humbled to think that um, I, I have been used in that way to help others. I love it. I just, it's a great, this is a great way to end our podcast based on what you just said because I think it's true. I, I do believe you are very authentic. You're not out to uh, <clears throat> make a buck off of somebody. You're just telling a story. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean just like yeah. it's no big deal. It's Of course it's a big deal. I mean, it takes a while to do what you do. But because you do it with love and devotion, and mm-hmm. then you affect others as well, you can close your eyes at night and say, I had a great day. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and, you know, not everybody takes the time to say that, but I suspect that you are grateful, and I'm grateful for you joining me again today. It's been a delight to reconnect once again and hear your story, because you just never know, Diane, who's listening that might be mm-hmm. so motivated by saying, it's time. It's time for me to write. And I just... Mm-hmm. I think it's great. And I need to think about who I know in the film industry, frankly, because <laughs> this is this is a movie for sure. But for now, Thank I'm just you. going to wish you a lovely rest of your afternoon um, as you look out your window and look out the main um, sky. And I'm looking out mine, and it's actually kind of blue today, so that's nice. And, mm-hmm. you know, this this is probably just a part two, and I suspect a part three will be down the road sometime. So um, <laughs> this is not the end of our journey so. together, for sure. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you, Marsha. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. It was just lovely. So everyone, go out there, check out, I, when I post the blog, um, you will be able to see all of the hyperlinks to to Diane, her books, and her websites. So thank you once again. I'm going to let you get on with your day. Everybody, you have a lovely day. Bye-bye for now.